You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudroom's Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told September 11th at Northern Light United Church. The theme was Lost and Found. Live music by Avery Stewart. Our first storyteller tonight is Eli Barcy. Originally from a small town in northern Michigan, Eli spent the past seven years teaching in southwest Alaska before moving to Juneau this summer in search of mountains and hockey. When the Juneau rain makes the outdoors undesirable, you can often find Eli and his wife Lane snuggled up on the couch with their two cats. When it's nice out, you can still often find Eli and his wife Lane snuggled up on the couch with their two cats. But he also likes to hike. Please welcome my good friend, Eli Barcy. Hi. So it's August 2011, and I've just arrived in Atmalfluk, a small rural village in southwest Alaska, to pursue a teaching career. In doing so, I left behind my friends, my family, and even my girlfriend. But don't worry, we're married now. Long distance works. And as I'm settling into my new home, it begins to dawn on me that maybe living in such an isolated place, so far away from my support network, might be a little tougher than I originally anticipated. Fortunately, it's not long before I meet Squeaks. One day, I overhear some students talking about some kittens living under their house. So I let them know, if they're up for grabs, I'll take one. A few days later, I'm at home, there's a knock on the door. I open it up. And there's a sixth grader, and in his hands is this tiny, fuzzy, black and white, googly-eyed kitten meowing like crazy, hence the name Squeaks. I'm now a cat owner. I'm a single, adult male living alone with his cat. (laughs) Not weird at all. But Squeaks is a real blessing for me. He really does comfort me and help me get over that isolation and that distance from my support network. He greets me at the door when I come home from school, He snuggles up beside me when I go to bed at night. He even checks on me when I'm in the shower. (laughs) But after a few years, I get the opportunity to move to a different village, to Tutuliak, to teach with some friends I've made, one of whom is Mudroom's very own Jeff Smith. The best part about this is they're not allergic to cats. So it's day one, I'm in Tutuliak, I walk into my new house, I let Squeaks out of his kennel to explore his surroundings while I go unpack. After a few hours of unloading boxes and rearranging furniture, I realize I haven't seen Squeaks in a really long time. Not that big of a deal. I check his normal hiding places, under the couch, under the bed, in the closet, but no Squeaks. So I look a little deeper. I check the bathtub. I check behind the washer and the dryer. I even check in the kitchen cabinets. Still no Squeaks. More confused than anything, I ask my roommates to help me out, and we start to kind of tear apart the house looking for Squeaks, but he's nowhere to be found. It's about this time that I realize it. The front door, which apparently doesn't latch very well, 
is wide open. Squeaks is outside, and this is really, really bad. A lot of villages in this region are not particularly cat-friendly. There's a whole bunch of subsistence fishing, and when people catch their fish, they hang it on these outdoor drying racks. Well, cats tend to get into those drying racks, and it tends to upset the fishermen. That's actually what happened to Squeaks' mom. She was shot by an angry fisherman trying to get into his fish. Beyond that, there's also the stray dog problem. A lot of stray dogs roaming the villages, so much so that you'll often hear of bounties of $20 a head for people to go around and shoot stray dogs. So I'm thinking, great, either Squeaks is going to get shot trying to get dinner, or he's going to be torn to shreds becoming dinner for a pack of ravenous dogs. Needless to say, I'm worried, so we rush outside and start the search. We look under the house. We look under the boardwalks. We look under all the buildings around our house. No squeaks. Then we hit the boardwalks and start roaming town. Anybody we see, we ask, have you seen my cat squeaks? He's black and white. He got out. Please let us know if you see him. But no luck. Go figure. It's a village of 400 people with maybe five cats in the whole place. No one's seen squeaks. Pretty hopeless at this point, but I have one last Hail Mary in me. I rush over to the school, I go to the office, and I grab the VHF radio. Lots of houses in this area have VHF radios in their homes instead of a telephone. So I turn the radio to the community-wide channel, and I press the talk button. Everybody, my cat Squeaks has gotten out of the house. Can you please help me find him? He's black and white. I live with Pat and Jeff in Barnett's old house. I hang around for a while hoping for a response, but it doesn't come. So I head back home and I slump myself down in the couch. Squeaks is gone, guys. I don't know how we could survive. He's been an indoor cat his whole life. He's virtually never set foot outside. If he's not dead now, he will be by morning. And as we sit in the living room, my roommate's trying to console me. It dawns on me, I haven't even told Lane about this yet. She is going to be devastated. She loves Squeaks probably even more than I do. This is a phone call I do not want to make. So in an effort to delay this phone call and hopefully get news that prevents me from having to make this phone call, I head back to my room to resume unpacking. After a while, I hear one of my roommates, and they say, hey, it's Squeaks. I rush out of my room, and sure enough, there he is, standing in the kitchen, acting as if we haven't been looking for him for the past 10 hours. I rush over, and I pick him up. Where the devil were you? And then I realize, whew, boy, am I glad I didn't call Lane yet. But then, at my moment of greatest happiness and most relief, I realize this debacle isn't quite over, and arguably, the worst part is yet to come. I set down squeaks, and I walk back to the school. I pick up the VHF radio. God, this is embarrassing. I push the talk button. Um, everybody, you can stop looking for squeaks. He was in the house all along. By the way, my name's Eli, and I'll be teaching your kids this year. Thank you, everybody. So our next speaker is Terry Stage Harvey. 
She is a Lutheran pastor, wife of a cop, and mother of three kids who love fact-checking her stories. She's a juggler of rubber chickens, lover of real ones, and owner of more Dostoevsky fan gear than one thought possible. They make Dostoevsky fan gear? <laughs> also passionate about making sure people, especially kids, have access to food and safe housing. Come on up, Terry. I was told not to touch the mic. <laughs> so I'm not sure I always believe this story I'm going to tell you, so if you don't believe it, I'm not going to judge you. 1993, 25 years ago, I was a recent graduate from college, and I moved from Ohio down to Possum Trot Road in Barnesville, Georgia. I try to check my ideas with reality. And so I moved to be close to Georgia's death row, and I lived in a community that provided hospitality for friends and family of people on death row. We visited death row, and I attended murder trials uh, to sit with the mom of the accused who was often alone. It was intense, <laughs> and we got paid $10 a week for all of the food and entertainment you could muster, which means we ate a lot of peanut butter, which I hate, and we played a lot of badminton, which I love, and I juggled. If ever you want a cheap and easy way to entertain yourselves, learn to juggle. You can do it anywhere with nearly anything. And I love juggling so much that that year my parents got me a ticket uh, to see Cirque du Soleil when it came to Atlanta. And so I got a ride up to Atlanta scene. I still remember it. He had these bazillion glow-in-the-dark balls and just bouncing them all over the place and they're flying all around and it is phenomenal. And then it's time to leave. And I told my friend, don't worry about picking me up. I don't know when it will be over. I've got a buck 25. I've traveled the world. I got this. So my friend said, fine, here's the directions. Now the problem with my brain is that I don't listen to directions well. Like, people start to tell me, and I hear the very first thing that they say, and then after that, my brain just translates it all to blah, 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 blah. And so I thought, it's fine. It's fine. I can read maps. There's a map, and I know about where she lives. I'll be fine. It's dark. It's raining. Marta costs, the, the, trails, the rail system there, costs $1.25. So at this point, I have no money. This is before cell phones, and I don't listen to directions. This is obviously going to turn out well. Especially when I get off of the train, and there is the map, and there is a large group of young men who have chosen to hang out around the map in the dark and in the rain. And it did not seem like the prime time to wander over as a single female and say, hmm, I'm kind of lost. <laughs> so I did what I always do when I don't know what to do and I looked confident and turned right, which was really, really wrong. 
And you know, you think it looks familiar, so you keep going and going until I ended up into a part of Atlanta that pretty much looked abandoned. The buildings are burnt out and they are boarded up. There are no convenience stores, there are no gas stations, there is nothing that looks like people live inside there. And every now and then a car would go by, but I've been attending murder trials. So I hide in the shadows because I know how that story turns out. So here's the funny thing about panic, is you kind of run into it like a wall, and it knocks the breath out of you. And I remember stopping and realizing, this really might not turn out that well. There are gunshots in the distance. And there's a part of your brain when you're lost that says, run. But luckily for me, that's against my religion. <laughs> so instead, I despaired. <laughs> and I prayed the prayer of panic that goes something like this. Oh, God, get me out of this. And I, the tears are starting to well up. I got nothing. And this is the part that I'm not sure I believe. Because I'm standing in front of this building, and there is a metal door there. And suddenly, that metal door comes flying open. And this very large, very drunk lady comes stumbling out, swearing at me. Girl! what the hell are you doing out here? And she grabs me and pulls me inside the building. And then she starts to cry. And I'm just standing there with my mouth open because it's this room. Have you ever been into the office of a warehouse, that drab kind of office that they have? It is that space, except that on one of the walls are about a dozen toilet seats <laughs> and they're decorated <laughs> like a collage there's one with mirrored tiles and painted now I don't really believe in guardian angels but I am pretty sure that the drunk swearing toilet seat lady is mine And she tells me the story between sobs that she's having a gallery opening for her artwork <laughs> and no one showed up, so she drank all the wine. <laughs> and so she's not able to give me a ride home, but she can call my friend. So my new best friend, guardian angel drunk lady, calls my hosting friend and tells her where we are. And my hosting friend hesitates about driving there by herself. <laughs> but she does, and she picks me up, and pretty much all I remember about the way home is her shaking her head. <laughs> you know, I never got to go back and see if it really was a gallery, if it was an illusion, because it wasn't long after that that I, I actually moved up here to Angoon. But we're out of time, and Kushtika stories are another night. <laughs> Thank you.
Our next storyteller is Steve Lewis. Steve moved to Juneau in May of 1992 from Colorado, where he was attending the University of Colorado at Denver. He began working for Alaska Discovery as a guide and an assistant mountaineering instructor. In July of 82, Steve founded a new team called Juneau Mountain Rescue and was the director of that team until 2009. He flew UH-60 Blackhawks with the Alaska Army National Guard and for the Army in Iraq in 2005 and 2006. He is a member of Veterans for Peace and currently works at NOAA Fisheries as a database developer and analyst. Last year, Steve became a business partner in the neighborhood gym called The Gym. Please welcome Steve. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about mountain rescue and search and rescue. And a lot of these people don't know where these mountain rescue and search and rescue teams like Juno Mountain Rescue and Sea Dogs come from. But they're internally motivated, but they're vetted by both local and state authorities because the state authorities have a statutory responsibility to create these rescues. And they're looking for experts in their field, just like any agency would. So... Juno Mountain Rescue and Sea Dogs, we get our guidelines from people like National Association for Search and Rescue, and then we're accredited for Juno Mountain Rescue in a way by the Mountain Rescue Association, which is not just a fraternal organization. They put you through the ringers. So these people that join these teams usually have no idea what they're getting themselves into. And there's quite a few books about this where these people come to these teams and go, well, I think I'll train for a little bit. And if you train well and you can follow, you know, some orders, because a lot of these things, there's quite a bit of structure of how we train. So a few weeks later, they might get a call because they know better or they don't know better. Because a lot of times if you call somebody at 1030 at night, it's not the chat when it's raining and streaming and slushing outside because those more advanced members don't want to be wet and cold all night long. So sure enough, late October, early November, father's up there hiking and hunting with his 13-year-old son. The father collapses. Son has to go for help because the father can't do anything. Runs down to the road, gets a ride somewhere, and goes, hey, my dad collapsed somewhere up Sheep Creek Road. Troopers call me. I start calling around, and sure enough, People aren't answering the phone. I do get a hold of one senior member, and I call two brand new people who didn't know any better because <laughs> they're going to be wet and cold for several hours. So we get to the trailhead, meet the trooper, and off we go up the mountain. They had just passed down below the timberline line at 2,200 feet. They're down about 2,000 feet, and we raced up there about as fast as we could, middle of the night, dark, cold, wet, our headlamps, the light being sucked up by the, by the darkness. And remember, this was 10 years ago. And if you look at a headlamp now and a headlamp back then, there's a big difference. So think about that. Think about the materials of some of you sitting in here about the difference between a 60-40 parka and a Gore-Tex parka. So anyway, we moved up. And what's amazing is that you can find somebody in the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere. So we got up to about the 2,000 foot level and started doing these big circles and finally found this man laying there on the ground. And I reached down to put my hand on his upper arm. And the first thing I noticed was it was about the size of my thigh. And I thought, oh God, this is a big man. 
The second thing I noticed is that he went into a supine position in incredible amount of pain. He couldn't be moved. And we're thinking, okay, here we are at the 10,000 or at the 2,000 foot level. We were going to get this big man off the mountain. We had intermittent communications with the trooper down there. I'm trying to convince him that I need a lot of resources to try and get this man off the mountain. And a couple minutes later, I hear the rotors of an 860. Now, there's two different rotors of an 860 in Juneau. There's the Black Hawk, but in weather conditions like this, I know that it takes a two-star general to sign off to launch that Black Hawk. So I'm guessing it's not the Black Hawk. So it's the Jayhawk, which is better because they have a rescue hoist and we don't get on my radio. Coast Guard, this is Juneau Mountain Rescue. And it wasn't two seconds later and I go, Mountain One, glad to hear you there. This is Coast Guard 246, 246. Mountain One, we're at your four o'clock, two miles. And about two minutes later, they were over the top of us. They could see our headlamps through their forward looking infrared and their night vision goggles. And if none of you have been below a 22,000 pound, 4,000 horsepower helicopter, it's a little different than underneath the star. Lights, flashing, trees are just moving all over the place. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> and so they move off to the side of us. And we're still working on our patient, getting him in our little lightweight fiberglass litter. And about three minutes later, this guy taps me on the back. It's a Coast Guard rescue swimmer, and he says, want a little help? Yeah. So he said, I need uh, one of your guys to go down and grab some gear with me. They dropped it off about 100 yards away, bring the gear back. We put him in a real Coast Guard, Ferno, heavy-duty litter. Hoist the helicopter, comes back in. They drop the hook, hook him up goes back up into the helicopter. The trees are just going crazy because now there's three extra people on the helicopter moving around. It's down a little lower. I mean, it's just, you can barely stand up straight. The 13-year-old kid gets hoisted up, the rescue swimmer goes up, and the helicopter moves over the top of us, starts going away, and there's silence. 10 seconds of silence. And one of the new members goes, what the hell was that? I said, that's a rescue, and it's worth being wet and cold. Thank you. So our next speaker is Phil Campbell. For the next 50 days or so, Phil Campbell is the pastor of the church that meets in the same building that Mudrooms does. This is his last mudroom story unless he discovers that he can't adjust to living in a place where he can't wear a flannel shirt year-round, and he moves back to Juneau. In keeping with the theme of tonight's show, he recently lost one of his front teeth, but he is yet to find that it has improved his ability to whistle. <laughs> we haven't lost Phil, have we? Here he comes. So the first thing I lost when I moved to Juneau a little over eight years ago was my anonymity. Now, being a minister is a semi-public profession anyplace, and especially so if uh, you've had the good fortune, like I have, to serve churches that understand that uh, part of the reason for being is to be involved in the community. 
That's been the case every place I've been, and I'm grateful for that. And no more so than here in Juneau and at Northern Light Church. Now, part of the loss of anonymity has to do with the fact that Juneau is the smallest place I've ever lived. But Northern Light is a congregation that's, well, there's little that happens in this community that has anything to do with social justice or community betterment that Northern Light's not involved in, and I'm grateful for that. Now, that's along with other congregations and groups and many people of goodwill, but it's the kind of place Juno is. Now, I'm not under any delusions about being famous or anything. I mean, it's not like I'm the governor or Christy Nami Erickson or Sarah Lynn Tabachnik or, or anybody like that. But still, it's just kind of a weird thing for me. Um, I just haven't ever quite gotten used to it, to know that there are people who know me that I don't know. And I feel like I know a lot of people. Now, in my case, here in Juneau, this is particularly compounded by the fact that in Juneau, uh, we are home to a disproportionate number of old, white-haired, white men with beards. <laughs> so. Even if there are people who uh, don't know me, they think they do because they know somebody else that looks like me. In my time here, I've been mistaken for George Partlow, Don Gotchell, and the late George Brown. And those are just the ones I know. It wasn't just but a few weeks ago that Jackie Farnsworth apologized to me for not speaking with me at the Democratic Party picnic. I wasn't there. And near as I can figure, neither were George nor Don, so it was some other old, white-haired, bearded, white guy that Jackie snubbed that night at the picnic. <laughs> now, it's not just that they know who I am, it's that they know stuff about me. <laughs> so, well, actually, this was several weeks ago, and I'm leaving my house, and um, there's a woman coming down the sidewalk, walking her dog on the way up to Coke Park, and I'd never seen her before. At least I don't think I have. Now I'm getting old and forgetful, and maybe I'd met her and I just forgot, but I don't think so. And she says to me, Pastor? So it's a tip-off right away. Somebody calls me Pastor that is not somebody who really knows me. They just know that I'm a pastor. So I'm kind of used to that, but then she says, When are you leaving? I mean, this was like a few months ago, and it wasn't like a secret or anything, but, but it's not like I'd gone on Juno afternoon to talk about it or taken out an ad on Facebook. How did she know I was leaving? Now, Mudrooms contributes to this, and, well, I guess that's the point of Mudrooms, isn't it? I mean, seven of us get up here and talk to a few hundred of you and tell you stuff about us, so then you know stuff about us. And, and nobody made me stand up here and tell a mudroom story. Well, actually, Tom Cosgrove did, but <laughs> I, I still could have refused. But so, so mudrooms is a part of this, too. So it was almost four years ago when I tell a story about a group of people named Phil Campbell, including me, who journeyed to Phil Campbell, Alabama, to help with the recovery effort after that town was devastated by tornadoes in 2011. It was a wonderful experience, it was a great opportunity, and I was really pleased to be able to tell that story in mudrooms. But then shortly after that, I have a first appointment with a medical provider who comes into town from another community once a month, and so I'd never met him before, and so I'm there in the exam room, he walks in and introduces himself, and he says, oh, I was at mudrooms the other night and I heard your story. 
it's just kind of weird, you know? I mean, it's like I'm here for an appointment. And <laughs> but that was like four years ago. So just a few weeks ago, I'm walking down Shattuck Way, which, by the way, Juno, when are we going to rename that street? I mean, how about Paratrovich Place? I mean, it was 1945 when Elizabeth bested the senator in the, in the hearing that ended legal discrimination in our state or the territory at the time. So anyway, but I digress. As I was saying, here I was just minding my own business, walking down the soon-to-be-named Paratrovich Place on my way to the library, and I hear this voice behind me, Phil Campbell, Alabama. I remember that story. And I turn around, and it's a woman exiting her car she'd just parked. Never seen her before in my life. It's not bad. It's just kind of a weird thing for people to know me. Now, anonymity is not the only thing I've lost since I've been in Juneau. I, I lost a bum right knee, which I was glad to have replaced. And then I lost a left kidney that I would have just as soon kept. Actually, by moving to Juneau, what I lost was the ability to lose a kidney locally, surgically at least, so I had to go down south for that. And I mean, this cold I've had, has it's been going on a month now, and I'd really like to lose it. But what I will never lose is my deep appreciation for the privilege to live and think at Ani. And I am grateful to the Akwan for the privilege of sojourning here and the permission to do so. I have found here a place that I intuitively get. I mean, big systemic issues are addressed on a face-to-face, one-to-one level, where there's the potential of them not getting mired in the bureaucracy, but there's the possibility of actually addressing them and fixing them. Here, I have found unrivaled beauty and endless possibility and countless opportunities to be involved, and I hope that in some small way, I have made a contribution. I've been enriched by diversities, and I found here a desire for people of people to work together and to figure things out. And I am confident, Juno, that this will continue. Now, I'll still be here for a few more weeks. So next time you see an old, white-haired, bearded white man, say hi. And I imagine that one of us will say hi back. <laughs> for now, I'll say, Goodness, cheese, Juno. I'm glad I found you. It's been a great ride. Listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded September 11, 2018, at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Lost and Found. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org.
Our fifth speaker is Pat McClear. Pat McClear is a Mudrooms veteran. This is her fifth time at the microphone. She is most appreciative of the folks who tape and archive the stories. She plans to have the stories available to the folks who will someday plan her memorial service. Why have others talk at the service when she can tell the stories herself? Please welcome Pat. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Sister Mary Annine was my first grade teacher. I loved her. That Christmas, I received my first nun doll. Guess what her name was? <laughs> my family lived just shy of two miles from St. John the Evangelist Elementary School, and I would walk home by myself, singing, telling myself stories, playing what if in my head. But during Lent, I would work the rosary beads in my pocket. I would pray. A silent meditation known only to me, a young girl scuffing her feet on her way home from school. The summer before my sixth grade year, my sister Mary, seven and a half years my senior, was preparing to enter the convent. I was so excited. Instead of a cedar hope chest like our two older sisters, Mary had a large black trunk and it was filled with all the items checked off her packing list and labeled with Sister Mary McClare. I was so thrilled that Mary was living my dream and I was living vicariously through her. The mother house, her new home, was just over the state line in Rhode Island. It was a beautiful New England fall day when we delivered Mary to Mount St. Mary's. We were all in our Sunday's best to get her there. And I was so very proud when she walked down the aisle of the chapel, dressed in her novice habit. It was as though I were walking right beside her. My sister Mary never spoke her final vows. The Sisters of Mercy are a teaching order and Mary was not an academic. The evening that she called and asked to come home, our parents left immediately to escort her. I was devastated. My sister Mary had punctured my dream. It took me a long time to forgive her. It took me a long time to talk to her again, but eventually I came around. In our hometown, the Knights of Columbus would sponsor an essay contest annually. And when I was in the eighth grade, the title was My Vocation. I wrote, I rewrote, I read it aloud to my sister Mary, I edited, I won first prize for my essay on why I was going to be a nun. <laughs> At the awards ceremony, my teacher, Sister Mary Everett, came up to congratulate me. And that's when my mother looked her straight in the eye and said, damn you, you won't get another one. I was mortified. I, I wanted the floor to open so I could drop through. 
My mother never told me she didn't want me to be a nun. My mother never told me what she wanted for me. But the nuns did. At Bishop Ian High School, I was taught by highly educated women of faith. It was post-Vatican II. The women's movement had new life. And many in the Catholic Church were involved with liberation theology, social justice movement. These women were exemplary role models. And I continued to contemplate following their lead, despite my mother's disdain for religious life. But I was uncertain. College turned the page for me. The more aware I became of feminism, the women's movement, the more awake I was to my own sexuality, the less a patriarchal theology was meeting my spiritual needs. I was, I was lost. I, mass, I never felt comfortable going anymore. And, and I tried different faiths, but nothing resonated. I think Emily Dickinson may have known the feeling when she wrote, I'm seated. I've stopped being theirs. I was spiritually adrift, no anchor, no compass, and there was a void, and that void ached. Years later, I'm driving in my car, I'm listening to the radio, and I have a NPR driveway moment. <laughs> you know of what I speak. You're driving in the car. They're talking about some story. You pull into the driveway. Can't get out. Can't get out. Got to wait till the end of the story here, right? So the reporter was talking about Unitarian Universalism, and I was like, what? I'd never heard of it before. Unitarian Universalism and what it meant to be a welcoming congregation. And there was none of this hate the sin, love the sinner. It was, and I quote, homosexuality is not a sin. Homophobia is, unquote. Whoa. Where can I find one of these churches? To the yellow pages. The next Sunday, I was in the back row, eyes, ears, heart, wide open. I was surrounded by people who looked genuinely happy to be in church. <laughs> there were families, children, elders, youth, a conservative dress sitting next to folks who were pierced and tattooed. The speaker that day was a rabbi, and during announcements, a meeting for queers was declared. Okay, really, they said queers in church? Nobody flinched. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm in the right space. I had found my spiritual home. That void had been filled with a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. That patriarchal dogma was replaced with a covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of all people. You use truth in advertising. They are indeed welcoming. Kim and I were married at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Burlington, Vermont. Thank you. The officiating minister, an ex-Catholic nun. I now have a small collection of nun dolls. And there's a statue of Mary and one of Kuan Yin in our yard, both of which are surrounded by threadbare prayer flags. 
releasing their intentions to the universe. My sister Mary is still a congregant at St. John the Evangelist Church, where she is a tireless volunteer for social justice. And on any given Sunday, when I am serving as a lay leader at the Juno Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, and I'm up at the altar, and I think of my mother and all those nuns who touched my life, and I think, they could see me now. Okay, so I'm excited. I get to announce my friend Tyler, smoker. Um, he just returned home after completing a graduate degree in Anchorage and manage, uh, managing to have a few adventures along the way. The story he is telling tonight is one of the most memorable. Come on up, Tyler. So I'm standing on a mountaintop above Hatcher Pass. All I can see in every direction are beautiful, snow-capped, rugged mountains. And the sky's been full of broken clouds all day with visibility kind of coming in and out. I'm out with two really good friends, both very capable, experienced, outstanding women. One's local, Jill Carlisle, you might know her. And it's my first day of skiing for the season. We started the morning by testing our avalanche beacons in the parking lot and uh, digging a snow pit on the way up the mountain to assess the snowpack for stability and look for signs of avalanche, which we didn't find. But there had been some snow and some wind, so there was definitely some concern that it was worth having. So our last run of the day, I'm standing at the top, and I'm feeling very anxious because the previous one, we'd had pretty poor light. I had to ski slowly. It was not very satisfying. So I went first even though it was uh, my first day skiing at Hatcher's and I'd never skied on this mountain before and didn't really know where I was going. So I skied a little too far down and my friends came down to join me and unfortunately this put us in a position where we had to ski across a little slope to get back to the road to get back to the car. And we didn't really think about what that slope was doing. We were thinking about the car. I was the third one across about 10 meters behind Jill. And when I was about halfway across the slope, I felt it start to move. And in that instant, I heard about 100 whoomps across the slope as the whole snowpack collapsed and turned into a moving jigsaw puzzle of about 1,000 pieces. And in that instant, time stretched and I realized what was going on, and I started to shout as loud as I could to get my partner's attention to both get away from the slide and then to also get eyes on me and pay attention to where I was going. As the snow swept my feet out from underneath me, I tried to get into the kind of ideal position with my feet downhill and my head sitting up, but a huge pile of snow hit me and sent me downhill making me lose a ski, and I also let go of my poles at that point. And from then on, I was swimming. I was in the snow and pushing it away from my face as I traveled down the slope 
trying to maintain an airspace so I could catch breaths. And it's kind of like swimming in a really chunky milkshake. It's very thick, right? So I feel the snow start to slow down. And in that moment, I think, okay, as soon as this stops, I need to move a hand away from my face. I need to push one up to what I think is the surface so that I can breathe and then so hopefully my friends can find me. But I start to feel the snow accelerate as I go over rollover. And in that moment, my heart really sunk because I knew at the bottom of the slope there was a gully and that at that moment I would be sent to the bottom of it and buried under enough snow that I would never be recovered. But in that moment, I somehow became lighter in the moving snow, was able to reposition myself and get my head back uphill, get my torso up out of the snow, and be able to breathe clearly again. And at that point, I'm back paddling as hard as I can to keep my torso up out of the snow and keep breathing. And then it stopped. I was sitting there in the snow, buried up to my shoulders in the back and up to my lap in the front, with one ski still attached. And kind of took a moment to gather myself and look around and make sure my friends hadn't gotten caught and then dug my ski out and had a hellacious one ski post hole back to the road from that big hole that I'd left in the snow. We had a pretty, pretty good conversation on the way back to Anchorage about what had transpired that day. And ultimately, it came to a uh, fundamental lapse in vigilance, okay? So we had done all the right things that day up until the points where I made a poor choice that led the group to make a poor choice that we hadn't considered. And that had created a, a pretty severe consequence. Eight months later, in July, I went back to Hatcher Pass, and I hiked back out on that slope and I found that ski. <laughs> so I have a pair now. It's a little rusty, but it'll be fine. But the more important ending to the story is that the weekend after the incident, I went back with the same friends and a different pair of skis, and we found some really mellow terrain, and we just went skiing all day and remembered why we loved it and why we belonged there and why that was part of who we are. And uh, I have never had a moment where it was more important to get back on the horse than that one. Our last storyteller this evening is Brett Dillingham. Brett grew up hearing wonderful and interesting stories from his parents and grandparents. He feels most fortunate to live in Juneau and thanks to all those who came before him who have made this such an incredible community. From the Thlinkets to the miners, the fishermen and state workers to the ravens who rule the roost. Caw! Caw! <laughs> he says. Let's hear another story. Please welcome Brett. When I was four years old, we went to visit my grandparents in Ann Arbor, Michigan. There's a street fair going on. One of the booths had a stuffed dinosaur. 
look like a, a brontosaurus or a long neck. I really wanted it bad, and my mom bought it for me. I named him Dino. Dino was green with brown spots and had a zipper along his back. I found I could store my treasures inside there. Hard candies, marbles, plastic soldiers, pennies, the occasional nickel or dime. I played with Dino off and on until I was in sixth grade. One day after school, my friend Lauren Boggs and I were having our stuffed animals battle it out. Lauren had a, a, a boa constrictor that he'd won at a carnival. It must have been eight feet long, but, but Dino was wily and tough. And he was just about to whoop up on that big old boa constrictor when the door opened and Lauren's brother Ricky stared in. You guys still play with stuffed animals? I felt caught, exposed, embarrassed. That night, I put Dino in my closet and I never played with him again. A few years prior to this, when I was about eight, a new family moved in across the street, the Dignans from New Zealand. Four children. One of them was Neil. He was different. Neil was slow in some ways, and he stuttered. He didn't go to school. He had huge ears that stood out from the side of his head. Neil loved my mom. When Neil and his mom, Patty, would come over for a visit, he'd sit on my mom's lap, and she would give him lots of care and consideration. It made me extremely jealous. My face, I know, turned red. I burned with jealousy. One time after they left, my mom had noticed my rage and resentment. And she spoke to me about Neil's differences, about how all the other kids made fun of him. And I knew that was true. She said, he was born different, and it would always affect him, but it had nothing to do with him choosing that. And she said, people like that deserve extra kindness and consideration and time. And she said this so clearly and with so much love that I understood here. I could feel it in my young bones. After that, I started paying attention to Neil. I noticed that he was fascinated by insects, all forms of them. He would go on bug hunts with a mason jar. The lid, holes poked in it so the bugs could breathe. I started going on bug hunts with him. We caught bumblebees, and honeybees. Wasps, hornets, moths, butterflies, dragonflies, beetles, 
spiders. I grew to really care for Neil. He became a true friend. He was very sweet and shy. And he asked great questions. He was interesting. And when he was young, when he'd get upset, he'd yell and he'd cry these you know, tears down and stiffen his body like that. But over the years, that went away. So he was just sweet and shy and interesting. When I turned about 20, Neil became very ill. He spent a long time in the hospital. And when he came back, he was confined to his bed. It was unclear if he would survive. I wanted to do something for him. So I brought him Dino and gave it to him. And over the next few months, Mrs. Dignan told me a number of times that Neil loved Dino and kept him in bed with him all the time. Neil eventually recovered. A couple years later, I moved to Alaska and began my adult life. And when I turned 29, I learned that my mom had cancer, so I quit my job and I moved back to Cincinnati. I don't remember much about that time. It was very hot and miserable. I sat on my parents' porch. I could see these massive branches of oak trees just break and fall into the street. I saw a tree just fall. And in the middle of that miserable summer, the bravest, wisest, most heartfelt woman I had ever met died. My brother Giles gave me an old Volvo to drive back to Alaska with, and I filled it full of the belongings that my parents still held for me. In an upstairs attic, I found Dino in a plastic bag, and I thought, maybe I'll give him to my children someday, should I ever have any. A couple days later, I was on the road, and I drove through Hannibal, Missouri, home to Mark Twain. I needed a rest, so I drove through a straight park and was on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River. I'd parked under the trees in some shade, a little breeze providing a respite from the heat. I began poking around in my belongings. I pulled Dino out of that bag he was in fine shape. Mrs. Dignan had sewed another eye on. He hadn't had two eyes since I was about eight or nine. And she cleaned him. He was very fresh looking. And on a whim, I unzipped his back and I stuck my hand in. I felt a stiff piece of paper and I pulled out a small unlined index card. There was writing on it. It was my mom's handwriting. She had written, so very much love.
I completely broke down, and then I shattered. Sobs racked my body. It felt like the bones were cracking in my chest, and snot and tears just rivered down my face. I don't know when she put that in there, before she was diagnosed with cancer or after. Doesn't matter. She knew. She knew. Someday, I would unzip the back of that stuffed animal where I kept all my treasures and I would find it. I lost my mom. And then I found her. Forever. So very much love. listening to KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on September 11th, 2018. The theme for the evening was Lost and Found. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit us online at mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from the storyboard members Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Jeff Smith, and Sarah Hannett. Music by Avery Stewart. I'm Alita Buss. Have a great night.